Part 52 of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume 1, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 52 John Terry and Joseph Heald Executed for Murder These villains were executed for the willful murder of a poor old woman named Elizabeth Smith, aged sixty-seven years, their object being to possess themselves of a small sum of money, known to have been recently before transmitted to her by her son. Their trial came on at York on Friday the 18th of March, 1803, and the indictment alleged the murder to have been committed at Flaminshaw, near Wakefield, in the same county. It appeared that the deceased was a respectable woman who obtained a humble living by disposing of the produce of two cows which she possessed. Misfortune, however, fell upon her, and her cows died, but through the instrumentality of her neighbours a subscription was raised for her, by which one cow was purchased. Her son, who was engaged in a decent way of life at Leeds, sent her eighteen guineas to buy another, and this was the bait by which the wretched men, whose crime we are about to describe, were allured. On the morning of the 14th of January, 1803, the poor old woman was found to have been murdered in her own house, under circumstances of very great barbarity, and suspicion having fallen upon the prisoners, they were taken into custody. Terry, then driven by remorse, made a confession to Shaw and Linley, the constables by whom he had been secured. He said that he and Heald, having determined upon the perpetration of the murder, agreed to meet outside the house of the deceased, at about one o'clock on the morning of the 14th of January. They met in accordance with their appointment, and Heald, having first entered the house by making his way through the first-floor window, with his, Terry's, assistance, he directly afterwards placed something against the side of the house, by means of which he was enabled to follow him. On their gaining the room of Mrs. Smith, they found that she had been alarmed by the noise which they had made, and was getting up, but they directly attacked her and knocked her down, and when Heald had struck her several blows, he took out a razor. The deceased was now still on the ground, and he, Terry, held her head, while Heald cut her throat. But at length, his fingers being wounded, he called to his companion to desist, as they had done enough, and proposed that they should go and see if all was safe. He then ran downstairs, but returning in a few moments, he found that Heald had got the old woman into another room, and was beating her over the head with a pair of tongs. Upon seeing him, he struck her no more, and then they directly secured the money and made off. From the evidence of the constables it further appeared that Heald, on hearing the confession of the other prisoner, upbraided him for deceiving him, and added, "'Thou knowest I was not with thee.' Terry answered, "'Thou knowest there is a God above who knows all.' and upon Heald remarking, "'Thou hadst better lay it upon somebody else,' he replied, "'I will not hang an innocent man, thou knowest, there were but us two, and God for our witness.' This, together with some other circumstances of suspicion, proved against the two prisoners, constituted the evidence against them, and the jury returned a verdict of guilty. Sentence of death was then immediately passed, and was ordered to be put into execution on the following Monday but in the meantime a most extraordinary change took place in the demeanour of the prisoner, Terry. Upon his being attended by Mr. Brown, the ordinary, he asserted that Heald was not guilty, 
and that if he were hanged he should be guilty of two murders instead of only one. He entreated that the clergyman would endeavour to procure the respite of his fellow-prisoner, and declared that he could not bear to be hanged with an innocent man. The whole of the circumstances were in consequence submitted to the consideration of the learned judge, and every measure of precaution was instantly taken by that learned individual to prevent the occurrence of an event which might deprive an innocent person of life. But, as it was found that Heald made no attempt to join in the protestations of his companion, and further that the whole of Terry's conduct appeared to arise from a desire only that the execution should be respited, and that his declarations were contradictory and evidently devoid of truth, the law was ordered to take its course. On the way from his cell to the scaffold, Terry appeared to be in the highest state of excitement, and upon his appearance on the platform he exhibited a most extraordinary degree of stubbornness. He shouted to the mob assembled that they were going to hang an innocent man, and even made an effort to escape by jumping from the ladder placed against the gallows, and which he was only prevented from doing by the clergyman, who seized him by the collar. He then renewed his protestations of his own guilt, and the innocence of his companion, and in spite of the entreaties of the clergyman, and of Heald, that he would allow him the benefit of the prayers, he continued to make the most clamorous resistance to the execution of the sentence. By the united exertions of five men, he was at length dragged to the drop, and the rope was forced over his head but in his efforts he tore off the cap, and at the moment at which the platform sunk, he made a spring, and throwing himself towards the side of the gallows, got a foot upon the beam, and caught the corner-post with his arm. In this dreadful situation he supported himself for about a minute, when he was forced off by the executioner, and then, with his face uncovered, he was left suspended. In a few moments both he and his companion in crime were lifeless. Robert Smith, executed for robbery. This singular robber was a Scotchman, and one of those adventurers who, ingenious in wickedness, devise new plans of depredation, and make the industrious, whose hard earnings they enjoy, the chief objects of their prey. The mode of robbery which this man adopted was that of employing a hackney coach to drive him to some outlet, and then robbing the coachman in the first lonesome place he came to in which for some time he was very successful. This trade he commenced early in the month of March, 1803, when, being genteelly dressed at night about ten o'clock, he hired a hackney-coach at Charing Cross, and ordered the coachman to drive to St. John's Farm, near the one-mile stone on the Edgware Road. When the coach got to the top of the lane, leading to St. John's Farm, Smith pulled the string and told the coachman to let him get out, for he had passed the house he wanted to go to upon which the coachman got off his box, and let him out of the coach. Smith then asking what his fare was, he told him, five shillings and sixpence. When he put his hand into a side-pocket, pulled out a pistol, and swore that he would immediately shoot him, if he did not deliver his money. The coachman complied, and upon his demanding his watch, delivered that up also, and the robber succeeded in making his escape across the fields. On Monday the 6th of March, at about eleven o'clock at night Smith hired another coach, and ordered the driver to proceed to St. George's Row, on the Uxbridge Road. Upon his arrival at the place of his destination, he demanded the coachman's money, and watch with the most horrid imprecations, and on some hesitation being shown to comply with his request, 
he produced a pistol and a tuck-stick, with the latter of which he wounded the driver in the side. Two seven-shilling pieces, and eight and sixpence in silver, were then handed over to him, and he decamped, threatening the coachman with instant death in case of his attempting to pursue him. His career of guilt, however, was destined soon to close, for being met in King's Road, Chelsea, by a patrol named Jones, on Sunday night, the 20th of March, under suspicious circumstances, he was taken into custody, and a pistol and sword-stick were found in his possession. Information of his capture being published, on the morning of his examination at Bow Street he was instantly recognised by Jones and Treadwell, the two coachmen, his robberies upon whom we have described, and further proof of his identity in the former case was found in a duplicate which was taken from his pocket, referring to the pawning of the watch of the prosecutor. Three other charges of a similar character were subsequently preferred against him by other coachmen, whom he had induced to convey him to unfrequented places in the vicinity of London, and a fourth case of robbery on the highway was proved by John Chilton, a porter at Messrs. Spode's, Staffordshire Warehouse, whom he had met at Bayswater, and whom, after having maltreated and wounded, he had robbed of three shillings and sixpence. On his trial the prisoner was recognised as a discharged artilleryman, and was identified by Treadwell, one of his prosecutors, as having been his fellow-prisoner in the King's Bench, and he was found guilty and sentenced to death. He was hanged at the Old Bailey in the month of June, 1803, apparently fully sensible of the enormity of the crimes which he had committed. George Foster, executed for the murder of his wife and child. The conviction of this wretched man was founded entirely upon circumstantial evidence. He was indicted on the 14th of January, 1803, at the Old Bailey, for the willful murder of his wife and child. From the testimony of the witnesses called in support of the case for the prosecution, it appeared that the prisoner lived in a place called North Row, Grosvenor Square, and that his wife and child lived with the mother of the former in Old Boswell Court, but were in the habit of going to the prisoner's lodgings to sleep every Saturday night. On the 4th of December, in compliance with this custom, his wife quitted her mother's house with the child, and was never more seen by her until the Wednesday following, when her body was picked up in the Paddington Canal, near the Mitre Tavern, at a distance of about two miles from Paddington. Inquiries were subsequently made, the result of which proved that the prisoner had been seen with his wife at the Mitre as late as half-past four o'clock on the evening of the 5th of December, and that then they went away together, walking by the side of the canal towards London. The prisoner was met in town by an acquaintance at about six o'clock, but no suspicion was entertained until the discovery of the body. The prisoner was then taken into custody, when he declared that immediately, on his leaving the Mitre, he had quitted his wife, and had gone across the fields as far as Whetstone, on his way to Barnet to see two of his children, who were in the workhouse there, but that on his arrival there it was so dark that he returned to London at about eight o'clock, but that he never saw his wife again. The learned judge, in summing up the case to the jury, remarked to them that the prisoner's story was utterly at variance and inconsistent with the evidence adduced, and a verdict of guilty was returned, and the prisoner was sentenced to death. He subsequently confessed the justice of his conviction and punishment, and admitted that he had conducted his wife twice to the same spot with the same object, 
before he could summon up the courage to destroy her. He assigned no reason for the diabolical deed, except that he had taken an unaccountable dislike for her, and did not know how otherwise to rid himself of her. He was executed at the Old Bailey on the 18th of January, 1803. After he had hung the usual time, his body was cut down and conveyed to a house not far distant, where it was subjected to the galvanic process by Professor Aldini, under the inspection of Mr. Keat, Mr. Carpew, and other medical gentlemen. Mr. Aldini, who was the nephew of the discoverer of this most interesting science, showed the powers of galvanism to be far superior to those of any other stimulant. On the first application of the process to the face, the jaw of the deceased criminal began to quiver, and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and one eye actually opened. In the subsequent part of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion. Mr. Pass, the beetle of the surgeon's company, being officially present during the time of these extraordinary experiments, was so alarmed that on his going home he died from fright. An experiment of another description was made on a convict named Patrick Redmond, who was hanged for a street robbery on the 24th of February, 1767, in order to bring him to life. It appears that the sufferer had hung twenty-eight minutes when the mob had rescued the body, and carried it to an appointed place, where a surgeon was in attendance to try the experiment of bronchotomy, which is an incision in the windpipe, and which, in less than six hours, produced the desired effect. A collection was made for the poor fellow, and interest made to obtain his pardon, for it will be remembered that the law says the condemned shall hang until he is dead. Consequently, men who, like Redmond, recovered, are liable to be again hanged up until they are dead. End of part 52